0: Okay, the only announcement I have this evening is that yesterday the Lord sent his angels to escort Ruben Monzon to his heavenly home, and he's now face to face with the Lord. So we need to continue to pray for the family, as this was quite a surprise, it happened within a couple of weeks and not expected. And so, uh, you know, that's all the suddenness of the Lord taking someone is always. Bit more of a of a shock, so be, please be in prayer for his widow Tony and for his sons Alex and Max and Alex's wife Kat and their 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 kids the grandkids. So uh, be in prayer for them. They're all believers. They're all solid. It's just uh, going through this time and. They've got to wait for all the family to get to the point where they all test negative before they can make plans for a service. So once that happens, which will probably be, take another ten days before they can get out and do that, then, um, then we'll announce uh, what, this, what the service is. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That promise in Psalm fifty-six, eleven, is something that we ought to all take to heart because we live in a world today that is transforming before our very eyes, And the security and the stability that we enjoyed over most of our lives seems to be evaporating before our very eyes with the many decisions that are made by bureaucrats and politicians that have no frame of reference for truth or stability or integrity So we need to be in prayer for our nations. We need to pray for our leaders, as Scripture says, so that we can live peaceable lives and be about the mission that God has given us without the distractions of of an oppressive government. So we need to pray for all of those things. So as we prepare ourselves to study the Word this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and you can make sure that you're in right relationship with the lord and then i will open in prayer let's pray our father we're thankful for this opportunity to be able to come together tonight For those here and those who are online, that we might fellowship together around your word, for that is the essence of biblical fellowship, walking with you, walking by the Spirit, and letting God the Holy Spirit fill us with your word, and being strengthened by the Holy Spirit in the inner man through the teaching of your word. As our Lord prayed, we are sanctified by your word. Now, Father, we pray that as we study tonight that uh, we might come to a, a fuller understanding of the role of God the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and how these things fit together in terms of your plan and purposes. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, tonight we are continuing our study of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And tonight we're going to look at the Holy Spirit's ministry to key people in the Old Testament, and we have started this as a topical study, a doctrinal study on the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, because as we reach this first judge, Othniel, in Judges three seven through eleven, we're told in Judges three ten that the Spirit of God came upon him. And he judged Israel. Now, what is important to understand is the prepositions. It's the little words in biblical study that are often the most important words. And that means prepositions, conjunctions, uh, words like that that uh, often people skip over, but trying to define them and understand them accurately is sometimes a bit of a challenge, especially. Uh, because in prepositions, which we'll be talking about a little bit tonight, uh, they're, they're, they're more fluid. You can look up a preposition in Hebrew or Greek, and they may have five, six, seven meanings. You know, We're going to look at one that is the preposition b. It's just the letter bait in Hebrew, and it's set as a prefix in front of a word. And it has the idea of in- or on, or upon, or at. So it can have that idea of being in something or on something. They're two significantly different ideas. And so how do you translate these things? How do you understand them when there are options like that? And sometimes you can figure it out from context. Other times you have to do what we're doing, and that is go through a broad study of what the Scripture teaches about how the Holy Spirit uh, functions within uh, our two believers in the Old Testament. So we began this study last time, and we saw that there are uh, several places in Judges where you have this phrase, the Spirit of the Lord. What is interesting in one study that I've been reading, the, the writer makes the observation that in most commentaries, the writers of the commentaries do not identify this as the Holy Spirit. Now, the people that we usually know, and I've mentioned some of our dispensational forefathers like Charles Ryrie and John Walvoord, Lewis Berry Chafer, Pastor Theme, many others who were trained through the ministry of Dallas Theological Seminary uh, would hold to, to this being the Holy Spirit. But you get outside of a well-trained, theologically trained uh, clergy, things get murky, things get confusing, things get rather nebulous because, frankly, they just haven't been taught enough. Uh, But the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of Yahweh, is the phrase that's always used, and so this is significant in a study of Judges. So it relates to, uh, is specifically stated in relation to uh, Othniel, and then again with Gideon in Judges 6.34, with Jephthah in Judges 11.29, and with uh, Samson in Judges thirteen twenty five fourteen six fourteen nineteen and 15.14. But what's interesting is that you have different verbiage with Gideon. It's literally the Spirit of the Lord clothed himself or enveloped himself with Gideon. And then in Judges 11.29, it came upon as it is with Othniel. But the first time it's mentioned with when the Spirit of the Lord first comes on Samson it, it is stirring him up. It is pushing him to uh, act. It is a very strong word. And then in 14.6 and 14.19 and 15.14, it all talks about how he came mightily upon, uh, upon Samson. So we started our study, and at the beginning I said that the issue is understanding the role of the Holy Spirit and the identity of the Holy Spirit as a person, as an individual, as someone who is fully God and part of the Trinity and treated as as an equal member to the Trinity, just as God the Son is. And one of the things I pointed out is that when the New Testament opens in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, there's no explanation of who the Holy Spirit is. It is understood by the writers of the Gospels that the readers of the Gospel will know who the Holy Spirit is, and they get that because they have been, uh, they understand it from the Old Testament. Rabbinic Judaism, which was really formulated, or it began to be formulated in uh, A.D. 90, 20 years after the temple was destroyed. Uh, the surviving members of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees met to, met together at a place called Jamnia in the south of Tel Aviv, and there they put together uh, the, the framework for continuing a Judaism without a temple, without a place to go for atonement, to find forgiveness, and to meet the Lord. And so basically because they were Pharisees, the foundation of rabbinic Judaism is nothing more than the than the background of, of the Pharisees. And so it, it brought with them the legalism that was part of the Pharisaical movement, that opposed the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons it's so that was so intense was because of all the groups in Israel, they were the closest to understanding the Scripture, which was why Jesus was so hard on them. The others, like the Sadducees, they didn't believe in angels or the supernatural or even resurrection. So they were, they were just like dealing with Reformed Jews today. They were pretty liberal. But anyway, so... You get this this beginning of the New Testament, and there's an assumption that the readers know who the Holy Spirit is, and the only place they can get that is from the Old Testament. Well, when the when the um, rabbis got together at, at Yomnia, their whole purpose was to structure and to make sure that when they structured this post-Temple Judaism, that they would really get a, do away with anything that might indicate that there was, were messianic promises and that anything that smacked of Jesus would somehow need to get reinterpreted. And many things took a thousand years within Judaism before they reinterpreted these, these things. But one of the things they made sure of was that they would get rid of any sense of plurality in the Godhead and so they they went to a strict unitarian monotheism and uh there've been a number of scholars who have done incredible work in going through the history of pre-first century uh Jewish documents to demonstrate that there was clearly an understanding Prior to the time of Jesus, that God existed as a plurality, as a unity and a plurality, and so on that basis, the writers of the New Testament, knowing that this has been the historic understanding that there were um, there was more than one member of the Godhead, uh, knew who the Holy Spirit was. So it's, it's just assumed in passages like uh, Matthew three, talking about the Holy Spirit coming. Uh, down like a dove when Jesus was baptized. John the Baptist' announcement that the one coming after him would baptize uh, by the Spirit. Uh, Jesus' instructions to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians uh, 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's clearly Trinitarian, 1 Peter 1, 2, God, uh, the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctification of the Spirit, and the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ all relate to the uh, Trinity. So what we've been doing is tracing the ministries of the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament. And I want to go over a few principles uh, that we must keep in mind as we go through this study. First of all, while the Holy Spirit at times had ministries to individuals that are similar to the ministries he has to church-age believers, they are not the same. They are different in key areas. It's not the similarities that we should focus on. That's the same principle when we study dispensations. There are a lot of similarities between dispensations, but it's the differences that are important. Uh, there are a lot of similarities between men and women, but as Maurice Chevalier says, it's the difference that matters. So we have to look at those differences. And uh, they, in, in that these ministries in the Old Testament were not for everyone. They were not related to the spiritual life. Of the individual, and they were not permanent. Three key factors: they're not; they are not, uh, they are not um, for everyone. They were limited. There were probably less than a hundred people in the Old Testament that had any relationship with God the Holy Spirit. They were uh, not related to the spiritual life. They were primarily purposed to give. Abilities of leadership or skill in some function related to the leadership in the administration of the theocratic kingdom that was established with the Mosaic law. And they're not permanent. They seem to be permanent with some prophets. For example, with Elisha. Elisha is empowered by God the Holy Spirit, and when he is transferring his cloak to, uh, I, mean, I meant Elijah, when he is transmitting his cloak to Elisha, his mantle, which is the cloak of his office, as prophet, Elisha says that he desires a double portion of his spirit. Now, a lot of translations will lowercase that spirit, but as I'm going to show you in this, we must uppercase that spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that empowered him. So what we read is, see here is that the Holy Spirit's ministry was selective not for every believer but for the key roles of leadership for prophets, priests, kings, writers of Scripture, and judges. Second thing is that several words are used. It's really interesting. There's such a complex of different terms that are used by the writers of the Old Testament to describe Uh, the Holy Spirit's relationship to these individuals. The primary word, the most common, is that the Holy Spirit came upon someone, and that's the Hebrew preposition al, which usually means on or upon someone. And so it's not an internal thing, it's more of an external thing. And then there are terms like filled. There are two or three examples where someone is filled with, uh, with the Spirit, but usually it's qualified. It's filled with the Spirit of wisdom, which tells us that it's not a filling with the Spirit like we think of with dwelling. It's uh, something related specifically to skill—skill skill in leadership, skill in craftsmanship, skill in prophecy or music—something of that of that nature. Uh, there's a couple of places where we're told that the Spirit is in someone. So there were some that were indwelt. There are some like Gideon, who's the Holy Spirit clothes Himself with Gideon, or it says that there's empowered. Uh, comes on, um, mightily comes upon Samson. And so we'll look at those as we go through this. Third thing is that at no point do we have it said that it's related to their spiritual life. No indication of that whatsoever anywhere in the text that it has anything to do with their spiritual life. Remember, they're in a different dispensation, and I believe that in each dispensation, there are different conditions for, for the believers of that dispensation. And it starts off where God provides virtually nothing uh, for the descendants of Adam between Adam and the flood. We're not told a whole lot about they don't have a Bible, they don't have the Holy Spirit, they don't have a lot. The most spiritual that we see of anyone is Enoch, and we have this enigma- enigmatic statement that Enoch walked with God and was not. What was that walk like? What do it mean, he was not? They just walk into a cloud and into another Dimension, what what happened? We don't know. But there's no mention of the Holy Spirit between Adam and the flood. The only indication is the statement in Genesis six three that the uh, spirit of uh, that he said, "My spirit will not," and the. King James, and some translations, translates it, my my spirit will not strive with men anymore. And you'll read a lot of people who will uh, talk about that. I've read through about three theologies by good theologians, good men. And I've been surprised, and you've been sort of the benefits of this is I've talked about the baptism by the Spirit, and I gave you quotes from Walverd and Ryrie and Chafer and Schofield and how they all missed it. Well, they're all theologians. There's not a Greek grammar scholar in the group. They're not looking carefully at the Greek text, which answers their questions. And then you get into the same thing with the filling of the Spirit, and you see, oh, you, you see in so many of these books by these normally very solid, very sound theologians and they say, Oh, we know that there are multiple fillings because of all these passages in Acts and on Sunday morning I took you through all those passages in Acts and they don't use the same verbs or the same prepositions or the same language that Paul uses in Ephesians five eighteen. So it's something different. And and I'm going aren't these guys opening up their Greek text when they're when they're writing these things and you know in some cases they are but but that's just not their that's not their forte. Every one of these guys had a major in seminary of theology, not Greek grammar, not Greek or not Hebrew and I didn't have a Greek major, but I've taught Greek so many times over the years that 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 made made up for a a lot of that. I'm probably better in Greek than I was in Hebrew that was my major. So uh we have to look at these things and and the language that's used. So there's uh no point, any suggestion that the ministry of the Holy Spirit to any of these people is related even to the illumination of the of the scripture. There's no sense that it's related to sanctification at all. In fact, Dr. Walvert, in his book on the Holy Spirit, which is mostly quite good says it will be noted first that the coming of the spirit to indwell individuals has no apparent relation to spiritual qualities only a few were indwelt by the Holy Spirit and these were known for their distinctive gift they were sought out as leaders and prophets and were usually marked men so that's that is well recognized statement there fifth since this ministry is selective and temporary, God could remove the Holy Spirit. God in his sovereign dis- sovereignty decides who the Holy Spirit is going to have some special ministry with, and he can send the Holy Spirit. When that mission is completed, the Holy Spirit leaves. And that is what happened with Saul in First Samuel chapter sixteen fourteen. Because of Saul's disobedience, God takes the Holy Spirit from him. After David's sin with Bathsheba and conspiring to have her husband Uriah uh, murdered, he prayed in Psalm fifty-one, eleven: "Take not thy holy spirit from me," because he knew that God could re- because he knew what had happened with Saul, because God withdrew the spirit from Saul in First Samuel sixteen, and when David is anointed, the spirit comes on him. And and so we see that, that David understood that, so he prays that God won't take the Spirit from him. So let's just kind of think our way through the Old Testament a little bit and look at some passages. We start off in Genesis, and in Genesis, the Spirit of God is mentioned in Genesis 1-2, that the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. And the word for moving there is a word that describes a bird brooding over the eggs in her nest. And so we have this sense that the Holy Spirit, like a mother bird, is warming up the planet. Uh, It's all darkness. It's covered with water. It is speculated that it could have been frozen. We don't know. And then we don't hear a reference to the Spirit of God again until almost the end of Genesis. As I said earlier, there's no mention of the Spirit in relation to Adam, Eve, Abel, Seth, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There's no mention of the Spirit of God at all. We know that they are men of great faith, and they are listed in the Hall of Faith, chapter Hebrews 11, uh, 4 through 7. Enoch's mentioned as a prophet in Jude 14, which suggests that as a prophet, that there would be some ministry of the Holy Spirit. But it's not mentioned in Scripture, so it's inferred from from the text. The next time we have the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God mentioned in in Genesis comes from the mouth of an unbeliever. In Genesis chapter 41-38, this is at the time of Joseph. And Pharaoh says to his servants, because they've got to find somebody who's going to deal with the consequences of Joseph's interpretation of the uh, dreams that the Pharaoh had, and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Now, we can't go there and take that as a definitive doctrinal statement because it comes from the mouth of an unbeliever. So what does the Pharaoh know about the spirit of God? He's really talking mostly within the framework of his own pantheism. He just knows that whatever deity there might be, that he gave Joseph the ability to interpret those dreams and to suggest what sounds like a very wise plan. Uh, so he's not making. Uh, he's he doesn't have his ThM or PhD in theology. He he barely even knows that there might be a god because he's heard some rumor of it. So he's just a pagan talking about it. It's it's sort of like a parallel passage in John eleven fifty. Caiaphas is the high priest. He hates Jesus. He's not a believer, not in the Old Testament sense, New Testament sense, not in stretch it as far as you can, any sense. And he recognizes, though, that Jesus has caused a, a stir, that there are political ramifications because of his claims to be a Messiah, and the Romans are watching them because there have been insurrections in the past, and so he makes this statement. It's a political statement. He says in John 11:50 that it's better for one man to die for the nation than, the, than that the nation perish. And inadvertently he makes a prophecy, and he speaks the truth, so it 's very similar to what Pharaoh does. He speaks the truth that that uh, that Joseph has the spirit of God, but we don't have any kind of specific revelation related to that. Now, the next person that we really run into is Moses in Exodus, but there's no real mention of Moses of the Holy Spirit coming upon Moses until we get to uh, Numbers. Much, much later in the whole episode, uh, we get to uh, Numbers, and this is when uh, God is telling him that he needs um, needs to appoint 70 elders to help administer the kingdom. And there we learn that God is going to take of the spirit that he's given Moses and he's going to give it to the 70 elders. That means that Moses already had the spirit. So we don't know when it happened, but we can guess that the Holy Spirit probably came upon him when he was commissioned by God at the fiery at the burning bush and God commissioned him to and sent him to Pharaoh and God enabled him to announce all of the uh, miracles related to the plagues and the exodus from Egypt. But we don't have uh, an overt statement at that, particular, uh, at that particular time. Actually, as you read through the text, the next person that is mentioned is a craftsman named Bezalel. Bezalel is going to be the—he's—he's he's probably the head of a guild of craftsmen, uh, goldsmiths, silversmiths, jewelers, carpenters, uh, those who worked with—with uh, with all kinds of metals, the blacksmiths that were—that uh, were necessary, and so the Lord speaks to Moses and He's given him the instructions for building the tabernacle. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Now that is very interesting. He's filled him with the Spirit of God. And then he says, In wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, and cutting jewels for setting and carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. I didn't see anything there about illumination of the Spirit or understanding the Word of God or proclaiming the Word of God or interpreting the Word of God or anything like that. It's all related to these, these craftsmen's skills. And that's what the, the word that we have translated filled is the word male, which it means to just simply to be filled or to be full. And it's a typical word you find if you're filling up uh, jars with water or anything like that. Uh, that's the word that it, that is used. But the text tells us what the purpose is for this filling ministry of the Holy Spirit to Bezalel. And that is to give him skill. The Hebrew word that is translated wisdom is chokhmah. And the meaning of chokhmah is skill. It's not wisdom, not in the sense that we think of wisdom in a Western culture, the wisdom of philosophers, the wisdom of Socrates or Plato or Aristotle, the wise men. No, the Hebrew word is skill. When we read Proverbs and we've studied Proverbs and we look at skill, wisdom in Proverbs, it's skill at living. The believer that is maturing develops the skills to live well and to honor God. This is what, when we have the problem-solving devices, the ten spiritual skills, the reason I like to emphasize that description is that's what they are, so that when we master them, we become wise. We uh, wisdom is an application concept to apply the word of God in our lives in such a way that it creates a work of art spiritually. So that's the role of the Holy Spirit towards Bezalel. It's not to help him grow and mature as a believer, but to give him the insights and the skill that he needs in producing these works of art that are unsurpassed in all of human history. The Spirit of God is enabling these craftsmen, these artists, to, to create all of these, the, the embroidery and all of the tapestries and to produce all of the dyes and all of the gold and all of the silver and all of the bronze and all of the wood so that this place where God will dwell is going to be the most beautiful spot on the earth. No, there was no art anywhere like that. So when we go to, go to Egypt, we go to Israel, we go to all these places, and we see this ancient craftsmanship that is quite intricate and qu- quite beautiful, that's nothing compared to what was in the tabernacle or what was in the temple. In fact, the temple was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world, that there was no place anywhere like Solomon's temple. So that's the idea of the Spirit of God to Bezalel. The text just tells us the sense in which this filling or the purpose for which this filling took place. Then also in relationship to the uh, uh, construction of the tabernacle and developing all of the uh, robes for the high priest and these things, that these unidentified tailors, they're gifted men, gifted artisans. Exodus twenty-eight three, God says, "...so you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash." So they shall make holy garments. See, that's why this is one of those passages just as an aside. A garment can't be morally pure. Holy doesn't mean morally pure. It doesn't mean righteous doesn't mean just that's how people often define it when they see the essence of god they'll say well holiness is the righteousness and justice of god but holy doesn't mean that holy means something that is set apart to the service of god it is applied to all of the utensils in the tabernacle and the temple it's applied to the clothing of the priests, and it does and none of those things can be moral immoral or amoral they are just things so that tells us the core meaning of that word has nothing to do with morality but has to do with being set apart to the service of God. so when we talk about words like sanctification and that is our spiritual life, its purpose is that we are to be set apart to the service of god that's that's romans 12, 1 and two so the clothing was set was made by special artisans who have the skill and wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. Nobody made clothes like that in the ancient world except these guys, and the only ones who wore it were the the high priest and the priests. Then we come to Numbers 11, Numbers chapter 11. And this is relating the episode where Moses has finally gotten a little tired of trying to do everything himself and so it's time for him to uh, delegate authority to others. And so God uh, gives him direction as to how to do that. And that's described in Numbers 11 and following. And the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people. So they had to fit a certain qualification. They were older. They exhibited certain character qualities uh, of leadership and devotion to God, who you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, bring them to the tabernacle of meaning, meeting, that they may stand there with you. And then in verse 17, he says, "Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you." That's that Hebrew preposition I have in the middle of the slide, al, and it means upon, over, or above. It is an ex- clearly an external a preposition of external relationship. And you'll put the sum upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. And then a few few verses later, uh, God does this. He comes down in the cloud and spoke to Moses, took of the spirit that was upon him, placed the same upon the 70 elders, and it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. Now, the rest of you are probably sitting there going, what does it mean they prophesied? I mean, we know what Isaiah did when he prophesied. We know what Micah did when he prophesied, but that doesn't sound like the same context. And I, we've gone through this before, and we will get to it some next week because I've got to develop this as well. But you have this concept of prophecy that is, that on the one hand, it's the role of the, of the Navi, the prophet, to be a like the um, like, like the attorney general of a nation that is pre- presenting the indictments against those who have violated the law, and the prophet represents God to the to the nation who has violated god 's law, but you also have these other passages where you read about when there is the song of Moses, the victory song after they have gotten out of Egypt. And Miriam prophesied. What comes next is the singing of a song. We'll see this when we get to uh, Judges chapter 5, after Deborah and Barak rescue uh, the Israelites and defeat the Canaanites under Sisera from and the king of Hatzor. Uh, then they write a hymn, and they sing that psalm in judges chapter five, and Deborah is introduced to us at the beginning of judges four as a prophetess and there are other examples of that there 's an example of the sons of Asaph as god or as uh, excuse me as David organizes the choirs in the temple. And it says, and it lists these musicians, and it says, and they prophesied with lyre and harp and uh, other musical instruments. Wow, we never thought prophecy involved music, but that is what we find in a number of passages. So that's what what I think on these odd situations like this where all these guys prophesied. They were singing hymns and psalms to God. They were worshiping God. And that's the same thing that we have in uh, situations where Saul is numbered among the prophets and he prophesies. Well, that's what they're doing. They're singing hymns and songs. Uh, That's the only way that it really can make sense. We'll, We'll get into that as we go forward. But what we know is that Moses wrote Scripture. We not only have this statement that the, he had the Holy Spirit, but that, that, and the Holy Spirit had come upon him, but we know that he was a writer of Scripture. And as such, the New Testament tells us that prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You see, Moses was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. In uh, Deuteronomy, uh, we are told, uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 22, we are told that there will come a prophet after Moses that's going to be greater than Moses, and that's a prophecy related to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Moses is the ultimate type of Christ and the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And Second Peter tells us prophecy never came by the will of man, uh, but by holy men of God who were that is, set apart men of God, the prophets, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So all of the writers of Scripture in the Old Testament were moved by the Holy Spirit. So they had some relationship with the Holy Spirit. First Peter one ten and 11, Peter also writes of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied, that is, the Old Testament prophets, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that followed. So there is clear statements in both the Old Testament and New Testament that some of these individuals had the Holy Spirit indwelling them, but it wasn't for the purpose of sanctification, It's not for the purpose of uh, providing the temple of, you know, uh, that that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He is creating a dwelling place for the Father and the Son. None of that is going on in the Old Testament. That's what we know of in our study of Ephesians uh, 2 and 3 now, that now it is the Holy Spirit who is indwelling every believer individually, but according to Ephesians uh, 2, 19 to 22 that the Holy Spirit is now building in the corporate body of Christ a temple for the indwelling of the Father and the Son. Then this guy's always the fun one. Everybody gets confused when they get to Balaam. And reading the, uh, Balaam's prophecies, and probably the best way to understand Balaam is he's kind of like a Caiaphas figure except I think that Balaam was probably saved, but in rebellion against God. And people say, well, why is God letting, you know, indwelling him, putting his words in his mouth and letting him speak prophecy? And that's because God is preventing him from cursing Israel because that's what Balaam has been hired to do by uh, the king of Moab is to, is to uh, curse Israel. And so by, uh, God says, well, you, you can't do that. You, you can't do that. So in Numbers 22 6, we read, therefore, please come at once. This is when, uh, he's invited by, uh, by the king of Moab to come and and curse the people. He says, therefore, please come at once, curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. So he's got a reputation as this diviner, as somebody who can uh, put curses and blessing on people, and he's hired uh, to come and curse Israel. And we know that Balaam was from Mesopotamia. Now, what's the major city in Mesopotamia? Babylon. Babylon. Very good. Babylon. Babylon is always the counterpoint to Jerusalem. Babylon is the representative of the city of man. Jerusalem is the representative of the city of God. And so he is from Mesopotamia. And this tells you that that where he is from is a land that is the enemy of Israel. So Deuteronomy 23.4 writes, says, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because, that is the Moabites, because they hired against you Balaam the son of Baor from Pethor Mesopotamia to curse you. So he's hired to curse Israel because the king of Moab knows that he's not going to be able to do it. So we're told that God intervenes, and God tells Balaam that he should go, but he can't say anything unless the Lord directs it. He can't curse Israel. And so Numbers 23, 5 says, Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, uh, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So that message of his is going to be from the Lord. And then in Numbers 24, 2 We're told, and Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes, and rather than cursing them, the Spirit of God came upon him. And this is that preposition, al. It's an external. That's the primary term I've said is the way this is described. Now, the next person that we're run into that has a relationship with the Holy Spirit is Joshua. And this is interesting because Joshua is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not like our indwelling. It has a different purpose and function. But we are told in Numbers 27:18, the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of none with you, a man in whom is the spirit and lay hands on you. Now, what do you notice about that? That Joshua is all, already has the Holy Spirit in him before he is set apart by Moses before Moses lays hands on him. So Joshua has been has had the Holy Spirit for some time before before this. In Deuteronomy thirty four nine we read. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. Now numbers, uh, Deuteronomy 34 comes at the end of Moses' life. And what we're told here is that after the death of Moses, the people recognized that Moses had the spirit of God. I mean that Joshua had the spirit of God and that he was full of the spirit of wisdom for leading them and leading them into the land of Canaan to defeat the enemies of Israel. So Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the Spirit of God, for Moses had laid his hands on him. That identified it, but we've already seen the Spirit of the Lord was in him before Moses laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded him. Now, after Joshua dies, and after after the conquest, and after Joshua dies... Then we see that the generation that comes after Joshua's generation is a generation that rebels against God, that ignores God, and that uh, turns to the ba- Baals and the Asherah in an act of treason toward God and to worship them. And so this is the context of the first judge and the people are in rebellion and God brings uh, Kushan, Rishathaim, Kushan of the Double Evil from Mesopotamia to, uh, into the Middle East in order to overrun everybody and to uh, oppress Israel. and it's in that context that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon. Uh, comes upon Othniel, and he judges Israel, and that is defined as a military defeat of Kushan rishathaim So he prevails over Kushan rishathaim And this is the first judge. This takes us back to where we started at the beginning, that there are basically four judges where there is a clear statement that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them, or is clothed with them, or comes mightily upon them. But, so, the first judge is Othniel. there's a mention of the Spirit of the Lord. The second judge is Ehud, and there's nothing is said of the Spirit of God. The third judge is Shamgar, and there's nothing said of the Spirit of God. But the fourth judge is Deborah, and nothing is said about the Holy Spirit in relation to Deborah, however. In Judges four four, we read, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidote, was judging Israel at the time. Because she is said to be a prophetess, then there must have been some relationship to the Holy Spirit. But it is not brought out or made an issue of, and she is going to Uh, as a prophetess, she is going to write this victory hymn that we find in Judges chapter 5. And so that is another role of the Holy Spirit in the writing of of an inspired hymn. The judge that follows her is Gideon. Uh, Gideon is not your greatest warrior. He's not out there. He'd rather hide back in the... um, Uh, Cisterns where they're sifting out the grain then risk being caught up in some sort of military conflict. But the angel of the Lord, there's debate about this. I think the angel of the Lord is a little bit sarcastic when he says, O man of valor, because nothing in Gideon's life indicates that he is a valiant warrior. He's hiding from the Midianites. And the last thing he wants to do is obey God. We see that he... Uh, he's going to put out the fleece. And he says, Lord, if you really, 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 really want me to fight the Midianites, then give me a sign. Well, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, told him to go to battle against the Midianites. And then when Gideon offered up a burnt offering, the angel of the Lord goes, poof, up in smoke in the burnt offering. Now, what more authentication do you need? But if you don't want to do it, you try to come up with something too difficult for God, and you say, okay, just to make sure you want me to do this, I'm going to put this fleece out here so that the dew will cover the ground around it, but the fleece will be dry. And the next morning he got up, and the fleece was dry, and the ground was wet, he thought, okay, Lord, one more time, this time... Uh, make the fleece wet and everything else is dry. See, Gideon isn't trying to get divine guidance. He's trying to avoid divine guidance and the Spirit of the Lord after that comes upon him. And so he calls the troops together. And the troops have no reason to follow Gideon. Why would they follow Gideon? He is a nobody. He said earlier his father's the least of all the... uh, fathers or families in the clan and the clan is the least of all the clans in the tribe of benjamin so why would they respond it's related to the spirit of the lord coming upon gideon he comes upon gideon and as a result of that when now when gideon blows the shofar to call the troops they are going to respond to him in order to go to battle But the word that is translated came upon is not what we've had before. It's the word lavash, which means to wear or to clothe. T and K is the abbreviation for the Tanakh. The T is for Torah, the N is for Nevi'im, and the K is for the Ketuvim, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Those are the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. And so when you buy a Hebrew Bible, you are buying, it will say on the front, the Tanakh. And so the Tanakh translates this, that the spirit enveloped Gideon. The complete Jewish Bible translates it, the spirit of the Lord covered Gideon. And then the Tanakh of 1917 says the spirit of the Lord clothed himself with Gideon. I like to use the Tanakh every now and then because it you see how Jews are translating it, and it's it's the same way. So that's the idea. It's not coming upon Gideon. It's clothing himself uh, with Gideon. And so if you're going to clothe yourself with a suit of clothes, are you inside or outside of the suit of clothes? You're inside. So this implies that Gideon is being indwelt, but again, it's for that military uh, power. Then we come to Jephthah. Jephthah always confuses people because we tend to interpret judges, as I've said, through the lens of Hebrews 11, where Hebrews 11 talks about uh, Deborah and Barak and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson as great men of faith. That doesn't mean everything they did was right. In fact, as we read through Judges, we'll realize that a lot of what they did led Israel into greater sin. And as I pointed out, Othniel has nothing negative said about him, but each successive judge has some negative traits until you get to Samson, who has nothing but negative traits and nothing positive said about him. But God points out that at some point he trusted God, and for that he gets mentioned in Hebrews 11. And as I frequently point out, that should give you great, great comfort because no matter how much we fail, if we just at one little point in our lives really trusted the Lord for something, then then God praises that and rewards that. So uh, Jephthah comes out of his house at some point. And remember, he grew up outside the country in the Transjordan. He hasn't had anybody teaching him anything about the Bible. He's like a lot of Christians. All he has is a lot of hearsay and a lot of popular uh, religious beliefs, a lot of which have nothing to do with whatever's in the Torah. And he's mostly influenced by the pagan culture. And the Spirit of God has come on him, and he knows his job is to go and defeat the Ammonites And so he makes this rash vow that whatever comes out of the door of his house to greet him when he comes home, he's going to offer it as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, you have to understand houses in that day had sort of what we would call like a carport that's part of the house, attached to the house, and that would be sort of an indoor area where your good animals, your prized animals would be kept in inclement weather And so he expects one of those animals to come out the front door, but his daughter runs out the front door. And so the text says he did to her as he vowed. Well, a lot of squeamish evangelicals say, oh, he wouldn't sacrifice her. Wait a minute. This is in the era when the Canaanites are offering their children... They're young children, not just infants, but young children on the arms of Molech to be sacrificed and burnt alive as a human sacrifice to the gods. And so Gideon, because he's living in this time when Israel doesn't have a lot of doctrine and they're told a lot about um, and, and they see these religious things the Canaanites are doing, he goes ahead and he sacrifices his daughter. That's not why he's praised as a man of faith. He's praised as faith because he defeated the enemies uh, of of Israel. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And so people go, how could he have sacrificed his daughter? Because the Spirit of God is not coming upon people for their sanctification. He's not coming upon people to guarantee that what they say or what they do is right. Right? He's coming upon them for specific things, and he's coming upon Jephthah to give him the military wisdom that he needs to go out and to defeat uh, the Ammonites. And, and that's what happened. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and then after the battle, you know, Jephthah had commit, made a rash vow. There was a way out of it in the Mosaic law, but because he's ignorant of the Mosaic law, he doesn't pay the redemption price so he can get out of it. But that's that's when we get into that part of Judges where it's showing how even the leadership has become so paganized because of the lack of their knowledge of Scripture that the whole culture is on the verge of collapse. And that's exactly what we see today. We see so many pulpits filled with so many men who are so biblically and theologically ignorant and who have compromised from their presuppositions on with the human viewpoint of our culture that the heresy that comes out of those pulpits is a stench in the nostrils of God. And that's why this country's... One reason this country's fallen apart is because the pulpits are vacant of truth. Same thing was happening in Israel at this time, so that the people, the believers, were, practiced, were living just like unbelievers, and that's what's, what this is demonstrating. Samson's even worse... Nothing good is said about him. He is, oh, he is so disrespectful and rude to his parents. He is so arrogant. And once he hits puberty, he's just looking at every uh, woman he does. He is a, a womanizer and he has infidelity, and there's nothing positive said about Samson but he does defeat the philistines he causes trouble at this point israel is about to just completely intermarry with the philistines and give it up and and assimilate and become one with the canaanites and god sends this bull in the china closet to disrupt everything and to wake everybody up so that they're not going to be able to just assimilate into the pagan population. So the Spirit of God comes and begins to move upon him. It's a very, very active word. It means to impel them, him, to push him, to stir him up. And that's what he's doing is he's stirring up trouble between Israel and the Philistines. Judges 14.6. 1419 and then 1514 all use the phrase the spirit of the lord came mightily upon him first of all in the first example as a result he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat though he had nothing in his hands with his bare hands he just rips this lion apart and he knows he's done wrong though because he's touched a dead body and that violated his Nazarite vow that's why he doesn't tell mommy and daddy what he did. He's a rebellious kid. Four, 14, 19, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused, and he went back to his father's house. So the Spirit of the Lord isn't coming upon him to give, make the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is coming upon him to give him the physical strength to be a rabble-rouser and destroy any hopes of harmony between Israel and the Philistines. So this is, in the last verse, that's used in Judges, is Judges fifteen fourteen, When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose with his hands. In all of these places, it's the same verbiage. The Hebrew word "salach," which means something rushes upon somebody, it has a variety of nuances, and it's the preposition "al" again that the spirit comes upon him. When we get into Second, I mean, First Samuel, we have. 1 Samuel 10, 6, 10 and, 6 and 11, 6, where the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul. And he comes upon Saul, and he'll prophesy with the prophets. And that's probably, as I said, singing hymns with them, singing psalms with them. 1 Samuel ten ten, 10, the Spirit of God comes upon him. He prophesied among them, 1 Samuel eleven six, And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard the news, and his anger was greatly aroused. This will be against the Philistines. So with that, I'm going to stop here. We'll pick up a couple of more. But this is what's going on with the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. And it's, it's fascinating to read through this. We'll pick up a few more as we go, go along. There's just so much to cover in relationship to this, but we'll, we'll get there and come to a fuller understanding of God the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It doesn't fit into a nice little neat package that a lot of evangelicals think the Holy Spirit fits into. And it is remarkable. You really have to know what God is doing in the Old Testament to understand what he's doing with the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't relate at all to what happens in the church age. So we'll come back and go through this a little more next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your Word, to come to understand more about how God the Holy Spirit ministered uh, to Israel in the Old Testament and the many different dimensions of his ministry, but that it is not at all like the ministry that he has today in relation to the church age. Father, help us as we study your Word to get a greater grasp and understanding and insight into what is going on in the Old Testament and to see these dispensational distinctions that are so important. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.